Hi there, and welcome to this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire. Well, let's face it. In one sense or another, each one of us is seeking to be, as the Bible puts it, justified. Justified in life, and most especially justified before God. The question is, how do we get there? That's the question we're asking in today's message, which is entitled, Justifying the Margins, and is based on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And it begins with a story of a tool of my youth that has swiftly become a relic of the past. Well, not only was it yet another sign that I'm growing older, it served as a reminder, a stark reminder, that so many of the tools of my youth have become relics of the past. A couple of weeks back, Lisa and I were in a shop that restores and repurposes old furniture, and there, on display, atop a restored antique desk was a manual typewriter. (laughs) And of course, my first thought was, am I that old that a typewriter is considered an antique? I mean, yes, we did, as I recall, have a couple of typewriters for sale in our yard sale here a couple months ago. And yes, thanks to computers, hardly anyone uses them much anymore. But friends, it always just kind of seemed to me that a typewriter, a typewriter at least, would always be of use. It would be something lasting in a world that is rife with technological change. Well, then I got to thinking about it, and I began to realize how my own task of writing has changed over the years, at least mechanically speaking. When I was young, friends, I loved to write stories, usually of the Scooby-Doo variety. And I would write them in longhand, as fast and as feverishly as hand and my blue number two big pen would allow. Then when I was in high school, I learned to type. First employing the classic hunt and peck method of of typing, that which my father claimed was the true Christian way of typing. (laughs) Seek and ye shall find. Eventually, though, I gained some skill and ease at the typewriter keys. I started out, yes, on a manual typewriter, an old Underwood, as a matter of fact. Then later on, I used an electric, finally, an electronic typewriter, which beeped when I used it. And at at the time, it seemed like state of the art, at least until the so-called word processors came into vogue. And that led, you know, to computer keyboards, uh, from, uh, from tower computers to laptops, to something called Microsoft Office, and something else I discovered when I was recovering from shoulder surgery last winter, voice recognition software, which, trust me here, will have you shouting at your laptop in no time at all. So, yeah, 
The technology here has grown well beyond the ancient typewriter. And also the ancient me, I suspect. But I think you'll agree with me that there has always been one thing that remains constant. And that is typographical errors. Even with the programs, here, technology again, even with programs like spell check and autocorrect, one is still very apt to make major mistakes in their writing, which, if you are a preacher like me, can often spell disaster. But you know what? I guess if I'm being honest, that's why I really do like writing on a computer. What with all the bells and whistles and buttons at your disposal, even the roughest of documents can appear polished and professional. And, and trust me, a lot of my documents are pretty rough. As silly as this is probably going to sound, I have to confess to you here that when I am writing a sermon, especially on those occasions, which happen more often than you might think, when I am struggling with just simply getting it all right in my own mind and getting it down on paper before 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, there is a certain satisfaction in knowing beyond any reasonable doubt that whatever drivel is coming out of my head and out of my mouth, at least on paper, the sermon's going to look good. It'll be neat and clean. The margins will be straight. I learned to have to do margins in grade school, and that, that obsession has stayed with me ever since. It will be straight and justified. Everything on this document will be all lined up smooth and straight. Yes. And therein, folks, lies the parable. The fact is, is that whether we are talking about word processing or whether we are referring to life its own self. We all want things to be all lined up smooth and right, don't we? To one degree or another, most of us are constantly about the business of justifying the margins of our own lives. Now, if that seems like a stretch, think about this with me for a moment. We talk all the time about tying up loose ends, about bringing closure to unresolved situations. We as a people do not like to have things left hanging. We want things to be good. We want to make things right with other people so that we can have their understanding, uh, their respect, and even their approval. Sometimes we will go, in fact, to absurd lengths to gain that. In other words here, we reason, do we not, that life goes well for us when it goes smoothly. Having said that, I do think that most of us accept that struggle is an inevitable, even necessary part of life. We understand that struggle does bring experience, that experience builds character, character feeds to faith, as Scriptures talks about, but we still, nonetheless, don't feel as though the struggle is through until there 
has been, shall we say, a smoothing out. And whether that struggle involves another person, whether that struggle has to do with the process of the unfolding of our lives, whether it has to do with our relationship with God, isn't it true that in the end, what we really want is for all to be made straight and right and good? Well, my friends, if you're looking for a biblical term for that, the word is justification. At the end of the day, and amidst everything we go through, what we are seeking, at least biblically speaking, is to be justified. That's the truth that's at the heart of this morning's text that Kay shared with us. Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke's gospel. Now, as we return to this parable, admittedly, it is one that sounds all too familiar to our ears, right? Especially since, and let's be honest about this, we already have the idea in our heads of who the good guy is going to be. Certainly not the Pharisee, who in his typically self-righteous arrogance has gone up to the temple that day to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Of course, this prayer of thanksgiving is being thankful that he's not like other people, most especially not like the low-down, dirty rat of a tax collector that he spots across the room. Did you notice that Kay, when she said tax collector, she paused and went, tax collector. (laughs) That would have been how I read it. Now, we know the ending of this story. That it's the humility and the confession of that tax collector that receives the blessing of God. For as Jesus explains, all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And all who humble themselves will be exalted. Truly, if one purpose of these parables is, as some would say, and I would agree, to identify ourselves within these stories, I dare say that in in this one, we already know who we're supposed to be. But here's the thing. What we often overlook in our reading of Jesus' parable here is that both of these men were in the temple that day to pray for the same thing. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector, were seeking to be justified before God. They were seeking to get right before the Lord. Both of them were seeking the approval, the favor of God. The difference between the two men was that the Pharisee was trying to do it all by himself. Now I know we tend to dismiss the Pharisees as overly legalistic and spiritually lacking. They are easy targets uh, for us preachers. Truth be told, friends, what we need to understand here is that basically this Pharisee, he was, uh, let's just say it, he was a good man. In a time and a place, you see, when everyone else was compromising their values and their standards, the Pharisees 
was a group who sought to teach and live a way of life as true to Jewish law as was humanly possible. And this particular Pharisee, let's say it right out, he did it very well. He fasted twice a week. He prayed the right prayers. He, he tithed everything he got. He went the extra mile and then added a couple more for good measure. Harking back to the sermon last Sunday, if there were camels, he probably was the one who brought the jugs to the camels. This Pharisee, you see, was conscientious. He was obedient. He was pious and in a good way. In other words, friends, he was, don't hate me when I say this, but he was a lot like many of our own church folk, just trying to do the right thing. But you see, here's the problem. <laughs> also, like some of our church folks, somewhere along the way, this Pharisee got the idea that it was his piety that was going to bring him favor with God. The Pharisees' practice of religion, you see, became something of a measuring stick. Something to see how he measured up in comparison to others. And so long as the yardstick was short, everything was great. Certainly, when he held that measuring stick up to the tax collector, it made the Pharisee seem tall in comparison. And so the Pharisee's prayer at the temple that day was not a prayer for God's favor, but it truly was one of thanksgiving. God, he said, I thank you that I am not like other people. Because you see, by his own calculation, he already measured up. The Pharisee, like those to whom Jesus told this story, was complacently pleased with himself. But of course, when one knows that he's righteous, the odds are pretty good that he's not. It's like what the great 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon once said about a certain man who was in his congregation. Spurgeon wrote that he thought that this was by far the holiest man he had ever known. That is, until the man told him so himself. Take that in for a minute. In comparison, though, we look at the tax collector, despised, vilified by the Jews of his time. Now, I think it's really important to point out here that we are not talking about your average uh, garden variety IRS agent here. We are talking about a man who, under the auspices of the occupying Roman forces, extorted as much money from the people that he could under a threat of violence to those people. This tax collector was, in truth, little more than a common thug. He used everything and everyone for his personal gain. He got all of his wealth by skimming off the top so that the Romans would be none, none the wiser. And we look at this man and we have to wonder how such a blatant sinner, how such an utter criminal could go home justified rather than the other. 
it would seem as though his situation as regards attaining righteousness would have been hopeless. And truthfully, at least on the face of it, it was. There was no way that this tax collector could make amends for all those he had injured, all those that he'd taken advantage of, all those people that he had placed into poverty. For all those people, he probably couldn't even remember who they are or what he had done to them. There was no way he was ever going to make things right. So, you see, this man did the only thing he could do under the circumstances. He went up to the temple to pray. And when he began to pray, he turned it all over to God. In contrast to the Pharisee, there's little pretense in what the tax collector has to say. He, he doesn't even dare look upward as he cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's just a desperate prayer from an anguished man mired in a hopeless situation. But isn't it amazing? It's in this moment that God comes, that God acts, and that God declares his love. See, truly, as Scripture teaches us again and again and again, it's God who justifies, not we ourselves. It's God, in infinite, graceful love, who justifies the margins of our ragged lives, who smooths out our rough edges, who makes us right as rough as we are. So in that light, you see, this parable makes perfect sense. The Pharisee comes to God with his hands already full of his self-confessed righteousness. So there wasn't room for anything else. So, of course, he went away from the temple empty of any kind of spiritual awakening. But the tax collector, oh, that low-down, despised thug of a tax collector, he goes to the temple, he lifts up his heart to God with his hands empty, his heart needing to be filled up. And God, in his infinite grace, fills him with unfathomable mercy. So the question that we're left with here is who are we in this story anyway? William Willimon writes that at the end of the day, this parable of Jesus is a story about Sunday morning in the chapel. What Jesus is saying here, writes Willimon, is that, quote, before any altar of God, in any service of worship, you mainly find two sorts of folk, Pharisees and tax collectors. Few of us, Willimon goes on to say, are one or the other all the time, but most of us are some of each, some of the time. I'd agree with that. You see, the truth is, friends, there are times 
that I identify all too easily with the Pharisee. Got to tell you, it's an occupational hazard. It's easy to let the trappings of religion, of church, the whole idea of faithful living that people like me espouse each and every Sunday to get in the way of actual faith. That is, of having a real relationship with God and Jesus Christ. It is all too tempting to become holier than thou about it all. Now, do not get me wrong here. It's not that we should not be striving to live faithfully. It's not that we shouldn't be working very hard in our lives to adhere to the law of God and of Christ. It's just that we cannot use our efforts in that regard as a way we justify the margins of our lives. The bottom line, no matter how hard we try, is that sometimes we succeed at living toward righteousness. But you know what? Very often we fail at that endeavor. That's why it's good news indeed that righteousness itself is a gift. Like mercy and forgiveness, like atonement for our sins, like redemption, like salvation. This is a gift. And it's a gift that only God can bestow. And thanks be to God, it is a gift that's extended to sinners of all kinds, in or out of the pews. And it is given out of great and redeeming love. Try as we may, friends, we cannot do this for ourselves. We have to depend on someone else to do it for us. And that, friends, is a pretty radical departure from how you and I usually tend to do things, right? I went to high school uh, with a guy who was the son of a prominent figure in my hometown. He was a leader in local government. He was something of a, a mover and shaker in our little town. And it was always perceived, rightly or wrongly, that this kid, this man's son, got an awful lot of breaks because of whose son he was. Actually, i got to tell you, looking back on it now, I don't think that was a fair assessment at all. But I do know this. I do know that in college and throughout his adult life, it was a real struggle for him to realize that what he received, what he gained, what he could achieve, could only come about by his own efforts and hard work. And truthfully, in life, that's a lesson that one way or the other, each of us come to learn. But here's the radical nature of the gospel, beloved. Where God is concerned is just the opposite that's true. The rules that we have to follow in life do not apply. In faith, we can't do it for ourselves. We are to depend on God. We're to, to depend on God for everything, and that includes our own righteousness. We cannot self-justify. No matter how hard we try, and we do try hard, God has to do it for us. 
And isn't that the struggle we face after all? Oh, occasionally, you probably know this in your own lives, I know it in mine, there come moments of utter grace when all of a sudden, out of a clear blue sky, we get it. Moments when we humbly come to God with empty hands and empty hearts, knowing that God and God alone can fill the spaces that exist there. There are these moments that we do have succumbed to the temptation of thanking God that we're not like other men and women. But sometimes we realize that that's not true. And we know it because God knows it. And so we know just how much in common we have with all those other people. And that's why we need to go to the temple to pray. That's why we come to our worship. And that is when, when we understand finally who we are and whose we are, that we can go home justified. That's when we will be smooth and right before God. And all we can do is just to say thank you. Thank you, God, for this inexpressible gift. Thank you for making us justified. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled, Justifying the Margins. It was recorded during our November the 14th service of worship at East Congregational Church in Concord, New Hampshire. By the way, if you'd like to be a part of one of those services live and in person, they happen every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at the church on 51 Mountain Road in Concord, just off exit 16 on I-93. Or else you can join us live online via Facebook Live on our East Congregational Church Facebook page. However it happens for you, we would love to have you be with us. And with that, we come to the close of this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, and I do thank you for listening today. And until next time, stay safe, be well, and may God bless you with a great day every day. We'll talk to you soon.